what these cells are doing is creating what's called a cognitive map of space, so a mental map. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, a place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest this week is an expert in navigation. When I say navigation, though, I don't mean sat-navs, for Kate Jeffrey is an expert in the neuroscience of navigation. By studying the cells of brains of rats as they move around a box, she can extrapolate how the human brain responds to movement, places, and therefore how we navigate our way from A to B. She is Professor of Behavioural Neuroscience, University College London. Kate Jeffrey, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. It's a pleasure, thank you. Nice to meet you. So let's start by looking at movement. As a transport person, one of the things that fascinates me is how we humans seem to be okay with travel. We've existed for a quarter of a million years as a species. And it's only for the last 100 years or so that we're able to go on trains, on cars, on planes, you know, travel at fantastic, unnatural speeds. You'd think that would fry our brains, but it doesn't. Why not? Well, I mean, to be honest, we haven't recorded cells and, and rats on trains or planes or automobiles or any of those things. Um, we, we record animals that are walking around. But one thing that we have found out about the brain in general is that it's it's incredibly flexible. So the human brain particularly is, is very flexible and able to cope with all sorts of things. And one of the reasons is that when it's trying to get information about what's going on, it uses multiple uh, different pathways all at once. So it does everything in um, parallel. When you're in a train or on a bike, the part of your brain that would normally be processing information about your movements, so looking at how fast the world is going past and all, all of those types of things, it's being challenged by something that's rather unusual and we didn't evolve to see the world go past at that speed. But we have adapted as you're walking, walking along, the world is moving past at a certain speed and you've learned from experience that that corresponds to having moved a certain distance. And so you can use that information to, to update where you think you are. You know, and, and we're remarkably good at it. Like when they first invented the automobile, they weren't sure that people would be able to deal with speeds that they were proposing. They worried that we wouldn't be able to breathe at those speeds, for example. Certainly didn't necessarily know that our brains would be able to make sense of the world at that speed. But actually, we're, we're pretty fine with it. It's remarkable. I mean, I, I, I've stood, not just a speed question, I remember standing at the entrance to the bus station at Walthamstow Central, where I live, and watching this platoon of buses coming around the corner into the station. Every single one, following precisely the same course, despite the fact that every single one was driven by an individual. And you look at the scale of that little human being in that cab at the front right-hand corner and the size of the thing they're attempting to navigate, and you'd, you'd expect a 50% hit and miss rate. You'd expect them to crash through the station half the time, and of course they never, ever do. And somehow our brains can manage not just to navigate ourselves, but even when we're in charge of these enormous structures to, to do the same thing. Do we now understand a bit more about how and how that becomes possible. Yeah, we're starting to learn about what they call brain plasticity. So plasticity means um, changeability. So how the brain changes in response to experience. And one of the things that's really fundamental to, to all brains, like right throughout the animal kingdom, is the way that the brain is able to cope and adapt to changing information. 
And when you think about it, that's really necessary because when an animal first arrives, it's very small <laughs> and then it grows. And so its brain has to deal with the fact that its limbs are changing size. Or So nature, instead of making everything what we call hardwired, which is just having a fixed connection between what goes in and what comes out, it's built in a lot of changeability and adaptability. So every time you make a movement, some part of your brain is saying, okay, I intended to make a particular movement. And what actually happened was a slightly different thing. So I need to adjust my expectations of, of that movement for future. Well, there's a famous experiment that was first done in the 1950s, where a scientist put on goggles that reverse the left and rightness of the world or the up and downness of the world so that um, everything that should be on your left appears to be on your right and the other way around. And I actually bought a set of these goggles not, not so long ago to try it out because <laughs> I'd heard about what happens. And what happens is that when you first put them on, you are incredibly disoriented. You have no idea where you are or what's happening. You can't even walk in a straight line. The world just seems completely crazy. But after a while, if you, if you wear them for a while, you start to be able to find your way around. You stop crashing into the door and um, you start to sort of be able to stumble your way around a familiar space. And then what this scientist found, he was very dedicated and, and he wore these things for several days or, or might have been weeks. After a while, the brain adapts so well that the world starts to seem normal and actually it, things just seem like they always have done. So your brain has essentially reversed left and right. And then when you take these glasses off, now everything looks wrong and you have to take some time to, to kind of reverse it all back again. So the, the, the brain is constantly able to adjust its wiring to compensate for what it's learning about the world. And so if you lose a limb, you know, um, and have an artificial limb replace, <laughs> or if you step onto a bicycle and now you're cycling through the world instead of walking through the world, you know, it takes a bit of getting used to it first, but after a while it becomes very natural. Your brain has adapted, the plasticity has happened, all of the wiring has changed, and you've, you've learned a new skill. So it's amazing. And so part of the reason why we can drive a, a double-deck bus, where humans can drive a double-deck bus, is that we have evolved to expect that we're going to change shape and size because we do throughout childhood. And so effectively, we're sort of treating this bus as a bit like an extension of us. Is that, is that right? Uh, there's quite a lot of interest now in the the way in which the brain incorporates a representation of uh, our tools. So, you know, if you hold a tennis racket or something like that, it, it's, it's a tool and it's almost like it comes an extension of your arm. And we can actually see that the brain starts to um, almost treat that tool as another part of itself. I mean, obviously, it's a part that doesn't have sensory receptors on it and so on. But you learn to adjust actions so that you can get the tool to do what you want it to do and a bus is like a very complex and large tool in a way and your brain has learned that there's a certain connection between actions you make with your arms and what happens to the progress of the bus through the world obviously you know it does take a while when you first start learning to drive it's all very awkward and you have to really think consciously about things you know you have to tell yourself right now i need to first put my foot on the clutch and then i need to do this and then i need to do that and then after a while, um, once you've figured out what to do, your brain devolves all of those instructions to a kind of unconscious part of the brain called the striatum. And this is, this is a part of the brain that deals with habit-based um, actions, things that you can do automatically without thinking. And your striatum just takes care of it automatically and you don't need to think anymore. And in fact, if you try and think about what you're doing when you're driving, sometimes you start to get mixed up and start to do it all wrong again because... Um, really, your 
striatum prefers to work without the interference of your thinking part of your brain. So tell me a bit about the research that you've been doing and navigation and what was what was known before you started and what is what you subsequently discovered. Well, I've been working on these cells that were discovered by John O'Keefe, the, these cells called play cells. And these are brain cells in this little structure deep in the brain called the hippocampus. It's this quite sort of long, thin structure buried quite deep in the brain. You've got one on either side. And... The reason that he was interested in hippocampus is that there was evidence coming along that it's involved in memory. And, of course, memory is a really important function. And and so he and many other neuroscientists were trying to understand what the hippocampus does. And he developed a new technique for recording single brain cells, so single neurons, from an animal that was awake and walking around and exploring its environment. That was was quite a major technical breakthrough because up until that time, we hadn't really known how to record you know, these, these neurons are really tiny. That You can really only see them under a microscope. They're very small. And so he used this new technique, and he discovered that if you, um, if you listen to one of these neurons, so what you do is you, you take the little electrical impulses that they produce and you feed them through a loudspeaker, and you can hear what the cell is doing. It sounds like a sort of chattering sound. If you listen to what one of these neurons is doing, what he noticed is that it will become really active whenever the animal goes into a particular place in the environment. So let's say the animal's walking around this kind of square tabletop, exploring, just gathering food, not not really navigating necessarily, but just, just wandering around. One of these place cells will become active every time it goes into the northwest corner of that tabletop. And another one might become active every time it goes over against the west wall or something like that. So these different neurons have these different places in the world where they like to become active. And O'Keefe and the neuropsychologist that he was working with, Lynn Nadell, put together this theory that what these cells are doing is creating what's called a cognitive map of space, so a mental map of where everything is, with sort of layout of the environment. And then they said, and we think that the connection with memory is that this map is used as a sort of framework for storing all your memories. So first you need to know where you are, and then having figured that out, you can then attach your memories of the things that happened there to that place, so that when you go back into that place, all of those memories come flooding back. Do we know how memories are stored? Yeah, I, I, My understanding of the way that my iPhone stores memories is that it's all about creating settings of various transistors and the positions of transistors determines what information is stored within it. Do we know how the brain stores memories or is that something we're still trying to work out? We're still trying to work it out but there is a a general agreement on the basic principle I think which is unlike a computer. So with a computer a memory is stored in a particular location. If you want to get a memory out of a computer you have to tell the computer where and it's hard to look and it'll go and find it. And we've known really for a long time that the brain can't be like that because you can damage little bits of the brain and it doesn't seem to obliterate any of the memories. And um, neuroscientists in the first half of last century really spent a lot of time trying to do this. So they would train animals to do things like press levers and then they would make damage to bits of the brain. And they found that nothing that they did really abolished the ability of the animal to remember how to press the lever to get food. So it didn't seem to be that the memory was in a place And instead, a theory came along that the memory is stored in the pattern of connections between nerve cells. So instead of being 
in one place, it's in um, multiple places in what's called a distributed network. So it's, um, it's a pattern, it's what they call content addressable, which means that when you go to retrieve a memory, instead of saying to your brain, I want you to look in this particular region of the brain, what it says is, I'm seeing these particular things, and I'm going to feed all of those things that I can see through my network. And if it matches any pattern that I've stored in my connections that I've seen previously, I'll, it'll send back a signal saying, ah, there's a match, you know, and that, that will enable the the memory to be retrieved. And we're trying now to understand how do you find of the many millions of memories that you've stored, you know, how do you stop them getting all mixed up and interfering with each other? And and why is it so quick to get information out again? You know, I can I can say a word like um, blurg and you immediately know whether or not that's a real word. You don't have to search through all of your words. So, you know, memory has some remarkable properties that we are trying to understand right now. And then Tell, tell me a bit about navigation and what that does and how it works. There's, we're, I think we're really um, only at the beginnings of understanding all of this. <laughs> so we think that the hippocampus is pretty central to creating this mental map of space because just about every experiment that you do that involves an animal having to remember you know, where something is in a, in, a, in a kind of a knowledge way, so not in a habit way, but in the the type of memory where, for a human, we would call to mind a picture of where we want to go. Let's let's put it like that rather crudely. So you kind of call to your conscious awareness um, an image of where you think you are or where you think you want to go. So that kind of um, map-like memory we think involves the hippocampus. And we know that if the hippocampus is damaged, then people lose the ability to form that kind of memory. So they, they get lost, they can't find their way around. When we do experiments on animals in the laboratory and damage the hippocampus, they can't find their way around and so on. So the, the hippocampus is central. And we think that the place cells are the cells in the hippocampus that are forming this map. And we know that a place cell will become active when an animal goes to a place. And so the question is, well, how does that place cell know where the, where the animal is? What information is it getting? And there's been a lot of work over many years that has has built up a picture of multiple brain areas that are all feeding different kinds of information into the hippocampus. For example, there's a set of brain areas that are processing which way round you seem to be facing. So they take uh, information from the eyes about what you can see and information from the, you know, the ears about what you can hear and so on, and also information from your um, sense of motion, so your vestibular system, about how fast you're moving and whether you've turned a corner and all of that kind of stuff. So all of that information gets fed into what's called the head direction system, which is a set of compass regions in the brain. And there, there are several of them. And we don't know why we need all of these compass regions, but you know the brain is very interested in which way around you're facing. And then that information gets passed on to the place cells. So that's one of the things that they use to, to help them know where the rat is. And then there's another type of cell that was discovered in the in the mid 2000s called grid cells, and these cells seem to track how far you've walked. So what they do is they become active when the animal is in a place. So there'll be if you're recording one of these cells, you'll find that there's this little region of the environment where the cell is active, just like with a place cell, except that if if the animal walks a little bit, the cell will stop being active. And then if it keeps going in a straight line, it'll become active again. And then if it goes on a little bit further, it'll stop. 
And if it goes on a bit further still, it'll start again. And if you track the cell for a long time, you'll see that it's, it's producing this really regular pattern of activity. And if you build up a picture of all the places in the environment where that cell is active over this very large region, it makes this really beautiful and very regular grid-like pattern, sort of like a polka dot pattern of these blobs of activity and these blobs of, of silence. And the blobs are all evenly spaced. So for one of these cells, it might be every 30 centimetres. So um, there'll be a blob, and then at 30 centimetre intervals around it, there'll be more blobs. And then at 30 centimetres around every one of those blobs, there'll be more blobs, and so on and so on, ad infinitum. It's really an extraordinary um, discovery. And what we think that these cells are doing is tracking distance walked, using all sorts of information, like how fast is the world moving past the eyes and how fast are the legs moving and how fast is the balance system in the brain telling you that you're accelerating and so on. So all of these different kinds of information are being passed into these grid cells. They're turning that into some measure of distance walked. That's combined with the head direction cells that are telling you what direction you're walking in. And then that goes to the place cells that can use that all to help build up a picture of where they are. And then another type of cell that's turned out to be probably quite important are these cells called border cells, which seem to be really interested in the boundaries of the environment. So if the rat walks up against the wall, suddenly one of these cells will become active and it'll be active all along that wall. And another cell might be active along a different wall. So the, the cells know which wall is which and so on and so on. So with all of that information, knowing where the walls are, knowing what way you're facing and knowing how far you've walked, we think that's enough information for... Oh, and there's one more thing, which is knowing which environment you're in. So the cells also get information that this is this is the green room and not the blue room or, or something like that, what we call context. So all, all of these different kinds of information are converging on these place cells and then they tell you where you are. At the start, you said you hadn't put a rat on a train, but I mean, what have you any idea what would happen if you did put a rat on a train and suddenly... Those the, the grid cell process is dealing with a, a train moving at 100 miles an hour. Would it would it not take into account that? Would it see, see the train as the boundary of its world, and therefore it wouldn't take any notice of the window going past? Quite possibly. So I think, I mean, people have put um, rats on little carts and and sort of moved them through the environment. And what we find there is that the cells get a little bit unhappy. Some some of the cells can um, can somewhat use that information because you know the rat can see can still see the world going past, but it's missing a lot of information um, about the rat's own self-generated movements. So just in the same way that we get a bit disoriented in a car, it's not the same as when you're walking yourself through the environment. It's, it's just harder to pay attention because you're, you're not moving yourself. Um, and especially if you're not the one driving, if someone else is driving, it can be quite difficult to, to kind of keep track of where you are. So there's a you know, it's difficult for the animals if they're being moved passively and it's difficult for them if they're being moved quickly. So let me ask you a question. I mean, you might not know anything about this. I don't know. But one of the things I've really noticed is that my wife and I navigate in totally different ways. So if you if we're both in a city and we want to find go to another place that we know, a place we both know, or we've been to that place before, I will say, well, roughly where is it in relation to where I am? And I will say, well, that's roughly southeast, and I will head off southeast. And I'll kind of follow streets that seem to be going roughly southeast until I get there. And the, the risk to my approach is that I go down a plausible-looking street that turns out to be a dead end, because I won't know that at the time. Whereas what my wife will do is say, okay, where do I know 
that has a route to that place. How do I get to that place? How do I get to that place? And she will trace out a series of lines that she she already knows and then go to the nearest place to her now that is on one of those lines. Quite, And the, and the risk to her approach is she will frequently end up walking the sort of D, the curved side of a D as opposed to going down the straight line because it's following paths she already knows. And we've really seen, we've been together for 20 years, we've really seen that quite consistently we adopt these two different approaches. Is Are we typical or do humans have totally different approaches to navigation and if so what what do we know about that yeah no you've you've beautifully described the two broad classes of navigational strategy um one is called map based and one is called route based navigation so with map based navigation you use a global sense of direction and a sort of global sense of where things are in relation to each other and you, you mentally position yourself in that map. And from there, you work out, okay, to get to where I want to go, um, it's roughly in that direction for roughly such and such a distance. And as you say, it's, um, quite, it's quite a robust method of navigation, except that it might get you into dead ends because it's not necessarily taking into account all of the details between where you are now and where you want to go. So the other type of navigation or strategy is called route-based navigation. And that's exactly your wife's strategy of um, having a set of waypoints connected with paths and memorising the order that you need to go. So chaining them together. I know that to get from here to my destination, I've got to go to A and then B and then C and then D. And I know that um, to get to A, I go down that street. And then from there to B, I go down such and such a street. And you chain together um, these different actions, and you don't necessarily have an overall signal of direction, but provided you are um, in a in a familiar kind of part of your route, then you have a pretty reliable way of getting to your destination. And it may not be the most efficient, but it's possibly the most reliable. So route-based navigation is is really good for familiar territory, because once you've optimized it, if you then just store that route, then you can execute that route without really thinking about it. And indeed, that's where that striatum, that habit-based uh, part of the brain, comes in really useful. So it's very engaged with route-based navigation. Whereas the hippocampus is doing the map-based navigation. So if you were following your route and then you came across a, an obstacle, let's say, like there's roadworks and you can't get down that street you were going to go down, then you would call to mind a mental picture of where you are and think, okay, what's what's the best way to get around this obstacle? And that's where your hippocampus comes in. So you've got these two strategies and we all have them both. But as individuals, we tend to slightly lean on one side or the other of our preference. So if you can use both, some people slightly prefer to use map-based navigation and some people slightly prefer to use route-based. And there has been some suggestion, and, and it's very debated and, and the evidence is not that strong, but there's been some suggestion that there may, there may be slight sex differences in preference with women slightly preferring the landmark-based strategy, route-based strategy, and, um, and males slightly preferring the more map-based strategy. Um, but it's pretty, it's pretty difficult to study because we, it's so confounded by all sorts of things that might predispose you to, to prefer one over the other. So, for example, men tend to drive more when men and women are together. So with driving you may be um, more reliant on a global strategy because you kind of, you, you may be going over a long distance. Um, 
you know, or, you know, women may more often navigate around familiar territory because they tend more often to be, I don't know, at home or something like that. So there, are, you know, there are kind of just societally induced differences that might predispose us, but there may also be intrinsic differences. And some studies of animals have found that the females are slightly better at learning landmarks so that you know specific objects that will help you get to your destination and the males seem to be slightly better at using the more distant landmarks that help you find your sense of direction yeah one of one of the things that i think for designers is really important is to take into account that there are these different strategies and individual differences in preference and making sure that both types of navigational strategy are being accounted for and making sure that they don't interfere with each other either so that people who like to use an, a map-based strategy have information about direction and so on and people who like a more landmark-based strategy have all of the the objects and the you know signs or whatever it is they're like um, but you're not confusing each type of person with the other type of person's information so i think we need to be thinking much more about the um the the cognitive kind of neuroscience of navigation in our design that's fascinating so my wife and i are basically typical but extreme what are the kinds of things that we need to be considering to make sure that we capture everyone's navigational needs when engaging in projects of any kind? Well, one of the things that you need to consider for the people who are using a map-based strategy, so who are trying to make a kind of a global integrated picture of where everything is, is that the sense of direction is really needed to glue everything together so that it's all the right way around, if, if you see what I mean. Because the head direction system is not using a, a global... Um, earth-centered reference signal like like the magnetic field. So there are some animals that will use the earth's magnetic field to always know where north is, for example. But most most animals don't do that and, and we don't do that. So what we do is we create a local sense of direction for every environment that we're in. So you don't necessarily know which way around north is right now, but you know which way around the room is in the house and you know which way room that, which way the house is in the street and, and the street is in the suburb and so on and so on. So even if you don't know um, really the global direction, you have a, a kind of sense of the directional relationships of all of the little sub-fragments. So you, to, to be able to give people an, a way to build an integrated map like that, you need to make sure that they can align their directions for all the different spaces that they're in. So for example, if they get off um, an underground train and onto the platform and then they go out into the where the escalators are and then they go up the escalator into the concourse and then up out of the concourse and onto the street. It really helps them build a map of that space if their sense of direction is aligned in all of those different places and that when they get onto the street level that, that their sense of direction is aligned with what they know about the rest of the city. So the simplest thing is just to make sure that they know which way north is wherever they are. And that's something that we don't do at the moment. So we don't give people information about direction when they arrive in a in a transport terminus, um, really at all, really not until they get outside and can use their phone and, and turn on the little compass signal on their phone, do they really know which way around they are in the big wide world. And I think that one thing we could be doing is making sure that there's always compass information for travellers on their journeys, wherever they are, so that those people who are trying to build up a map have the information that they need to do that. 
It's absolutely right. I mean, I whenever I come out of a tube station, that's exactly how I think. I know roughly where I'm trying to get to, and I think which way am I facing right now? I have to sort of work it out and turn it around. And as you say, I'll, I'll then check on my phone. But it's often frustrating needing to wait for my phone's GPS to catch up because actually I've got a rough sense of where I'm trying to get to. I just need to know which way it is, and then That's I'll right. then I'll head off and I'll work it out. Yeah, yeah. And then, but even once you f- figure that out, that doesn't help you retrospectively know which way the train concourse behind you was oriented or the escalators before that or, you know, so, so that whole station, you haven't necessarily got a good map of that station relative to the outside world. Whereas if you had been able to build that map, then the next time you go through that station and maybe you want to go out the, the west exit next time, you know which way around everything is in the station already because that information was provided to you the very first moment you set foot in it. And, you know, I, I mean, this is hypothetical at the moment. I don't know how useful this would be. But I, I do think if I was designing for um, for the underground system or something like that, that is something I would try out. What happens if you give people coordinated directional information in all of the subspaces that they will be in? Does that help them build up a map and then be more efficient in how they get through that space the next time? From a, from a personal point of view, it literally never occurred to me that it could be possible, that it makes total sense to me. Uh, because that's, that would reflect, replicate below ground the, level, the way I think above ground anyway. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And it also means, you know, as a, as a tourist, when you get popped into a, a region of the city that you've never been in before, um, if that's near another region that you had been to by some other means previously, your sense of direction for those two regions will be in alignment so that if you ever find yourself having to walk between one and the other, there's no conflict. And because I think I've had the experience, and I think a lot of people have had the experience in London, of experiencing it in a very piecemeal fashion. So you you go into Covent Garden and you kind of you know know that area, and then you go to Piccadilly and you have you know that area, but you never really have understood how those two are related to each other um, because you misaligned your head direction system slightly between those those two regions. So I think you know we could be making things a lot easier for people. So putting direction signs below ground would help me a lot. My wife would think it was utterly pointless because she never has the slightest interest in knowing which direction anything is. And she'd follow the signs and be quite content. Is there anything else that could help her with the way that she processes navigational information? Well, people who are doing route-based navigation rely a lot on landmarks. And one of the things that we don't know much about yet is, is exactly what types of landmarks are best for enabling route-based navigation. So what we tend to use is verbal signage, but what we don't know is whether the navigation part of the brain is able to use verbal inputs to to, um, help it build up its representations or whether that's a very indirect way of orienting. So for example, if you just had something that said north is over there, (laughs) could your head direction system make use of that information or not? I, I don't know. If you're navigating um, on a route-based strategy, could you use verbal signs as landmarks or um, is the brain really, did it evolve to use things that are more like three-dimensional physical objects like you would have encountered in the natural world, you know, a strange twisted tree trunk or a rock or, you know, a a waterhole or something like that. So in the real world, when our brains were evolving this this system, we would have you know, encountered real three-dimensional objects. So it may be that those are the types of things that work best for trying to give somebody a, 
um, a route-based map. So we really don't know. And, and I think that's a, potentially an area for active research to find out what is the best way of giving people something memorable on their journey so that it's easy for them to remember how to, how to recreate that journey. So in that sense, some of the sort of your towns or historic towns with fountains on one corner and statues on another corner actually might unintentionally be particularly good environments for navigation. I think that's, that's really true. And one of the things I've wondered about is whether that's why um, older style, more what they call sort of organically developed towns, you know, that have gone back centuries and were never really planned. A lot of people find those more pleasant environments to walk around in. And I have this idea, which I haven't sort of thought of how to test yet, but I have this sort of hypothesis that we prefer spaces that are easier to navigate and we prefer navigating in these spaces that are somewhat irregular with memorable things in them. So, like you say, a surprising fountain or a statue or a strange building or, you know, a square with trees, like all of these, you know, varied and interesting and different things that help you really build up this picture of the layout. And because you have a, a picture and you feel you know where everything is, you feel better in that space and more comfortable. That's that's my kind of hypothesis. And, um, and certainly for me, I mean, I, the, the, the place I like least from the point of view of navigation is where my parents-in-law live, which is a relatively new suburb. It was built, I think, around the 1980s, 1990s, that kind of time. And all the streets have a slightly gentle curve to them. So I can find myself changing direction without realising I've done it. And the entire suburb is designed around cul-de-sacs. Yeah, yeah, there was a there was a fashion. I don't know if they still do this, but there was a, a fashion for um, yeah, these curved streets with cul-de-sacs, exactly like you say. And it's um, one of the problems is that the curve is so gentle that it doesn't activate your head direction system because... You don't know, you don't, you're not really aware of having turned around a corner and you can have been led around a 90 degree bend without fully appreciating it. And so you end up with these two bits of your map that are completely out of alignment. And it's very difficult to navigate efficiently through a set of streets like that. If you're doing route based navigation, it doesn't really matter so much because you, you know, you've learned which is the quickest route. You just know that you walk around the street until you get to the intersection and then you turn right and so on. But if you're trying to use a map-based strategy, you get very lost and horribly confused. And and I also find with streets that are in a, in a very grid-like arrangement, although it's like, like US cities, a lot of US cities have a very rect rectangular grid, and it's quite useful for navigation in the sense that you can do it logically and verbally with verbal reasoning. You know, I'm on 98th Street, I need to get to 92nd Street, so I just go this direction for, you know, six blocks or whatever. Um, but I find it difficult to build up a, a mental picture of where everything is. So I can reason with logic about how to get places. But I don't have the sense that I kind of understand at a visual level where everything is. And I think it's because everything looks so much the same. The streets are all straight, um, buildings, they may, they may be different in, a, in, in the level of detail, but my brain just kind of treats them as buildings. And we've done some experiments in the lab showing that place cells get a bit confused if their environment is too repetitive. They, even though the animal can, can walk between one place and the other, and, and so 
in some sense it kind of knows that they're different places, but the place cells will often just make the same pattern in the new place as if they haven't really cottoned on that it, that it is a new place. Absolutely fascinating. Um, what do you think, final question, what do you think is the, is the next big thing to be discovered in the world of navigational neuroscience? I think probably the, the next big thing, well, for me, the, the big unknown question is, is where is the global picture of where we are? So we know that the place cells tell you kind of you are here right now. So if you're in a place, your place cells will be active and that's how your brain knows where you are. It knows which place cells are active. But if I'm thinking about somewhere else or thinking about how different places are related to each other, where is the bit of my brain that kind of has the big picture of all of that and how all of those things relate to each other? Where's the big map? That's the big question. Yeah, exactly. All right, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me for this. Um, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that concludes the freewheeling podcast for this week. Thank you very much to my guest, Kate Jeffrey, Professor of Behavioural Neuroscience at University College London, and thank you to you for listening. I'll be back next week with another edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. If you get two minutes in the meantime and feel like jumping onto Apple Podcasts for a quick rate and review, that would be fantastic. Otherwise, see you next week. Bye.